Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We're coming to you from Western Koshkonong Lutheran Church in the concrete jungle of Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. This is a member congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Today we're going to be talking about the angels, uh, the creation of angels, the creation of man, the fall of man into sin. So we've got a lot to sort of cover today. We're going to get right into it. Obviously, angels has been a, a topic of interest for people for a long time, but I would say uh, there was a point probably about 25, 30 years ago where angels were all the rage. There was books, tons of stuff written on angels. If you went to a Christian bookstore, you could find a whole shelf probably full of books about angels. It got to the point where people almost were worshiping them in a certain sense, maybe, uh, you had little angel figurines set around your house, but none of Christ or something like that, you know. But nevertheless, certainly the Bible talks about angels. They come up at very interesting points throughout the Bible. So they do play a prominent role in the scriptures, and it's good for us to understand what they are and what their purpose is. So what does the Bible teach about the creation of angels? And here we're, we're looking at an argument more from silence because it doesn't say a lot specifically about the creation of angels, but we have to fit them in also with what we do know. We know that they were created. In Exodus 20, it says, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So included in those six days of creation would be the angels, the spiritual angels. Now, we don't know which day that would be specifically. So I can't say, well, it was the fourth day or the fifth day or sixth day or something like that. But it's reasonable to conclude that within those six days, God created the angels as well. Colossians chapter 1, St. Paul writes, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we would include angels there under the category of invisible, right? Uh, in heaven, they're the invisible spirit beings. Genesis 1.31 tells us that after creation, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we can reasonably deduce from these passages that God created the angels within the six days of creation that we have recorded in the book of Genesis. And because God said, behold, it is very good, we know that the angels were all created very good. They were created as good. Now, what information do we have about the holy angels? Maybe some more descriptions of them in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So it's kind of intriguing in, in this sense I know a lot of people were infatuated with angels and, uh, you know, people talk about their guardian angel and, and wanting to communicate with angels or whatever it might be. But when we look at the biblical role of angels, they're actually serving those who will inherit salvation, serving believers. That's one of their functions. So very interesting. In Revelation chapter 5, St. John writes, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So uh, there we get the picture that there are many, many angels. It's not, there's just a select few. 
or a small group, there's thousands upon thousands, more than you can even count, really, is what the point is there. In Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21, we read, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. So the angels are very numerous. They're also very strong, but they're not all powerful. So it's important to remember that they're not equal to God. They are spirit beings who are certainly mighty and powerful. In Psalm 91, uh, we read, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So there we see that the angels have the specific purpose of carrying out God's commands or, or doing his will. That would be the previous verse too. But in Luke 16, Jesus said, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Certainly the unique job of angels is to serve God's people, as I mentioned earlier, to serve those who will inherit salvation. Now that, that explains the existence of angels, but it doesn't really you know, answer the big question is, you know, where did the devil come from? What about Satan? Did all of the angels remain good? And I think everybody listening probably knows the answer to that question. It's pretty obvious. There's evil in this world. Where did it come from? God himself is not the author. So did all the angels remain good? Second Peter 2, verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, Dun 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 dun. Yeah, bad there we go. Yeah, bad news. Yeah. The angels sinned. And I think it's proper in the original creation to speak of angels as having a perfectly free will. They could serve God or they could choose not to serve God. And we see that some of them did not. They chose poorly. They chose poorly, yeah. Mark chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He, re he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Obviously, we're talking about driving out a demon here. The point here is uh, some of the angels did not remain good. They sinned against God. And uh, from the second passage I read, we, we realize that there are also numerous, there's many of these fallen angels. So many angels sinned, and thus they became evil angels. Now, uh, this is kind of a... a a topic that I think people sometimes get too interested in, but it's certainly one we want to be aware of uh, because there are real evil spirits at work in our world. Uh, maybe we'll get to some of the stories, uh, how that, that affects us and so on in future episodes. But what do the scriptures tell us concerning the evil angels? In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So the angels were thrown out of heaven. They, were, they have a place reserved for them specifically. We call that place hell. And as it stands, the evil angels also, as we're going to see in 1 Peter 5, give us reason to be wary. Because uh, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the evil angels can be a problem or a danger to believers and to all people, really. And that's why St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That kind of sounds scary. That the does. spiritual forces of evil in the it's heavenly everywhere. places. Yeah. So there is a real danger. I think, I don't remember who it was that remarked one time, maybe it was Luther, who said, uh, you know, if you could see at any moment all of the arrows pointed right at you, right. you know, you'd probably tremble in fear. So there is a real danger. These are real bad, bad beings, uh, spirit beings, uh, that work to undermine God's goodness in his work in this world, as we, as we see in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And then later on in the explanation, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the evil angels from the scriptures we know were forever rejected by God and doomed to hell. And they, like their leader the, called the devil or Satan, are cunning and powerful. They're enemies of God and especially of man, a man serving God. So they seek to destroy the works of God and to lead man into eternal damnation. Now, remember the cartoons where they had the angel on one shoulder and yeah. the devil on the other, or God on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Uh, you know, we have to be careful that we don't make the devil God's equal. You know, there's a good God and a bad God, something like that. Good and bad trying to get you to go one way or the other. Yeah. They were equal, right. Right. So we would never say that the devil is God's equal. Is he powerful? Yes. Is he cunning? Yes. Uh, Certainly, we have reason to be afraid of him. On the other hand, he is not like equal to God. It's not like there's a good God and a bad God. So he was a created being just like the other angels, the good angels, except for he had rebelled against God and fallen from his place in heaven. So we're kind of getting now towards... Obviously, what did the evil angels do after they fell from heaven? And, of course, you know the rest of that story. What happened after Adam and Eve had been created and placed into the Garden of Eden? And when we look at Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, we see that the serpent comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he asks this insidious question, Did God really say... Remember, God had given Adam and Eve one simple command by which they could show their worship of him, and that was, you may eat from any tree in the garden except for the one in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. And he said, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the the result of disobeying God would be death. Now, the serpent comes to Eve And, you know, he asked that question, like I said, did God really say? And he immediately plants, he tries to plant a seed of doubt. He he tries to drive a wedge between the truth that God proclaims and man who is to hang on to every word that God speaks. Kind of a play on the word death. Did he really mean death? Yeah, he said, you know, know, surely you'll not die is basically what the devil says there. And Eve looks at that tree and she sees it's pleasing to the eye, that it's good for food, and it's, you know, it's got this advantage of gaining wisdom, you know, maybe even being like God. And I would just point out that, you know, it would seem as though the temptation that the devil puts on Adam and Eve, it really stems from his own problem. And the own, his own problem was pride. 
he he wanted to be like God or right. God's equal. Right. So uh, some people have a real problem with uh, what is it? What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is that even about? And I think it's a little confusing to people. You know, doesn't God is he trying to keep something from us? Doesn't he want us to have knowledge? Why why would this tree be there and you say you can't eat of it? And that was a temptation. The temptation, yeah. I mean, so if God said it, it should have been enough. You're right. But we would have to ask even maybe one step further. What does it mean to to know good and evil in the biblical sense? And if God said this is good and this is evil, that should be enough, right? Right. But if if now you're saying, I can know what's good and evil on my own. I don't need God to tell me. I can decide this for myself. You see how that's exactly how sinful man thinks to this very day. I I don't have to believe what God says. I can determine for myself what's right and wrong, what's true and false, what's good and bad, what's evil and good, and so on and so forth. It just makes life a lot easier that way too. Well, right. It's very convenient for right. a sinner to be able to say, I don't need to listen to anybody. We recognize that even in our own upbringing, right? You know, so if your parents said, you can eat anything in the fridge, but don't touch the cookies in that cookie jar. First thing you're going for. Yeah, the first yeah. thing you went for was the cookies. <laughs> you, you, you didn't care what was in the That's fridge. Right. But the fact that they said you couldn't have that, boy, it just made it that much more desirable. Now I really want it. Yeah, so, you know, the devil has this way of making sin sound so much more appealing and beneficial than it really is. And of course, uh, we see the result is, you know, Eve takes some of the fruit, she gives some to her husband who's with her, they both eat, and immediately the Bible says their eyes were opened. And then they realized they were naked. And then there was shame. And then there was guilt. And, uh, you know, the question is, did they die immediately? I mean, you'd have to say, well, God had said that in the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. But they don't seem to die. In fact, they're still alive, and they're alive for many years after. So what gives? Was God lying? Was there some untruth to this? Is the Bible wrong? But in order to understand this properly, uh, we would have to say the Bible does speak of three different deaths. So the first death that we hear about would be spiritual death. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They had perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect knowledge of God. But now all of this has changed spiritual death has entered the world. And if you don't believe me, take a look at what their actions are. They went and they hid themselves in the garden. Do you really think that you can hide yourself from the all-seeing, all-knowing God? Uh, that's a problem. Obviously, something has changed in their understanding of God. There's now a separation. There's now fear of God. There's, yeah, there's a separation. And, uh, you know, God says, did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat of? Oh, no. You know, and like the like the kid who's trying to pass the buck, Adam says, well, it was the woman you gave me. She gave it to me and I ate. Well, at first it sounds like he's, you know, just passing the blame on Eve. But really, he's ultimately blaming God himself because right. it's the woman you gave me. You're the one who did this to me. And that's the part that I think sometimes we overlook. This is how bad it is instantly. You, you think you can hide from the all-seeing knowing God, and then you have the, the audacity to turn around and blame your creator for your disobedience. Uh, so then he turns you know, to Eve, and of course, 
she's no better. She says, well, it was the serpent that made me. He, he at, made me do it. Yeah. At first glance, that seems like she's blaming the devil, right? The right. serpent, or right. as he comes to them in the form of a serpent. But really, she's also blaming God. Who is the one who created the animals and so on? Well, it was God. So, so the animal you created made me do this. Yeah. In other words, you're the one that made me do it. And this is, uh, this is very revealing. They have died. Yes, they died on the day they ate of it. Spiritually, they died. And as a result, we know that physical death would also, was also part of their world now. In fact, there was no death up until this point. The first death, interestingly enough, is what? It doesn't come much later. It actually comes right there in that chapter where we read that Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with leaves from a tree. They tried to cover their nakedness, the guilt and shame of their disobedience. Of course, leaves don't make a good covering. They wither pretty quickly. They don't last. No. I see the farmers out in the field picking their crops, and immediately after they pull them out, you know, those leaves start to wither a little bit. They dry. Dry pretty quickly. So God kills an animal, and he takes the skin, and he clothes them. He covers them. Interesting. There you have a beautiful picture of the gospel. There had to be death so that the guilt of their shame, the guilt of their sin could be covered. We're not told what that animal was, but wouldn't it be fascinating? And wouldn't it be totally fitting if it was a lamb? Ah, possible. Foreshadowing, you know, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So fascinating account there. Obviously, then comes the curse and God's promise of a savior. The first gospel promise comes all the way back in Genesis 3:15. A lot of people say, well, the the Old Testament is law, New Testament's gospel. Uh, nope, not at all. In fact, the gospel's right there in Genesis right right away after the fall into sin. God says that he the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. And there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and 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 uh, the seed of the serpent. So Obviously, there's a, there's a fascinating account there, but then we didn't speak of the third death yet. We talked about spiritual death, which came about right away, physical death, which would come many years later, but would nonetheless come. Uh, death, the wages of sin is death, as we, as we learn later in the scriptures in the New Testament. But worst of all, there's this idea of eternal death, eternal separation from God. And that's a problem. So man had this perfect union with God in the garden, it's destroyed by sin, and there's no way for him to remedy it. So Adam and Eve, uh, what do you think that their only hope is at this point? To cling to the promise that God had made to them. Right. He said, you know, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. So it's interesting when Eve gives birth to her firstborn, she really thinks she's given birth to the Savior. She was wrong, but she had at least the right idea. We get some insights into how she understood that gospel promise. So... Uh, anyways, I don't want to get too far afield here. What is sin then? You know, we talk about sin. Sin, you could say, is a crossing the line. It's a transgressing the line. It's a missing the mark, to use an archery kind of illustration. Or you could just say sin is lawlessness. God says do this and you don't do it. The problem is that we can we can sin by what we do. You know, when God says don't do that and we do it, we can sin by what we don't do. If he says do this or if he says don't do that and you do it, then you, by what you do. Uh, we can sin in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. So if there's one thing that we come into this world knowing how to do very well, it's sinning. 
you know, you never had to teach your children, children when they're, when they're growing up, how to, to be naughty. That <laughs> comes right. naturally to them. Trying to teach them to do the good thing, that, that doesn't come naturally. It's a lot of work and there's a lot of resistance, a lot of rebellion against that. So sin is lawlessness. Furthermore, the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Well, who's it speaking of there? Who does it exclude? Who makes a practice of sinning? All of humanity. Everybody. Yeah, and what, what does it say there? He who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. devil. So we're already starting to get into some implications of this fall into sin and what, is, what it means for all of humanity following Adam and Eve. It says, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning, you know, since, the, since his fall from heaven. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, talks about how sin came into the world through one man and then how death came to all men because all men sinned. But we'll get to that in just a second. So sin came into the world because of man, because of man's disobedience to God. You know, we can't pass the blame. We can't say, well, the devil made him do it or God made me do it because he gave me this woman or whatever it might have been, the excuses. The, the bottom line, the responsibility for disobedience falls back on the one who's disobedient. Mm -hmm. And that was Adam and Eve. So just sort of a recap, the devil in the form of a serpent tempted Adam and Eve to break God's command and Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation of the devil and they sinned. Now, we said that means that there are consequences for you and I and for all of humanity. And this is where a lot of theology gets derailed. You'll find a, quite a bit of variation when we look at the teachings of various, the various church bodies out there in this regard. What is the natural condition as we are born into this world? And you'll hear it very commonly say, well, we're, we're born with free will, and it's up to us to decide to obey God or disobey God which is actually not true, as we'll see later on. We, we, are, we are born in bondage to sin. Our, our will is born in bondage. Now, free will, uh, I think we have to maybe explain that a little bit further. So in terms of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, you can get up and you can decide, I'm going to go to work or I'm not going to go to work today. You can get up and decide, I'm going to watch cartoons today. I don't even know if they have cartoons on anymore. Do people even watch TV? They probably different, watch different YouTube. kind of cartoons, but I think there's still some cartoons. I'm going to get stuff. up and go on YouTube and watch right. cartoons. There you today. go. Yeah. Uh, or uh, no, I'm going to go to school. I'm not going to go to school. I'm going to open this book and read it. I'm not going to open this book and read it. I'm going to eat breakfast. I'm going to skip breakfast. Whatever it might be. It's my choice. I'm going to. You have those decide choices. What to do. Right. Nobody's denying that. Nobody's saying you're a puppet or a robot that's automatically you know controlled. But in terms of spiritual matters. Nobody has the ability to say, hmm, I think I'll give myself faith today. Right. It's, it's above your pay grade. It's not even a possibility, as we're going to see. And uh, this is such a huge, huge point, because if you get this wrong, everything that follows is probably going to be wrong. That's like the, the, the good and the bad on your shoulders in the cartoons. Right. It's, it's just a choice. Well, no, yeah. that's, that's not how it works. Yeah, so we want to we ask the question, is, is man born neutral in terms of spiritual things? Is man born with a spark of good within him? That's what you'll hear a lot of people describe humanity. And they'll say, well, everybody's born with a spark of good within them, and it's up to them to find it. Or everybody's a blank slate, and it's up to you to write your own story. And you can choose You're the taught bad. how to do bad. Right. You can choose the bad. You can choose the good. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible 
says. But again, if you get this wrong, you're probably going to misunderstand the doctrine of how a person comes to faith, conversion. You're probably going to misunderstand the gospel then that says it's all what Jesus did and nothing you've done. I'm probably getting way ahead of myself, but we will talk about this topic again, especially when it comes to conversion. How does God bring a person to faith? And even the way I phrase that question is probably too revealing. I mean, it's God who brings us to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That means by our own natural abilities, we don't have that capability. And yet, how many churches out there teach, yeah, it's it's what Jesus did, but now it's up to you. You have to say this prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. Well, show me in the Bible where, where that prayer is because it's not there. Show me in the Bible where you even have that ability to even think that way. Right. Or, you know, so, so we'll talk more about that particular aspect of it in the future. But we, now we want to explore what is the natural condition of all people as they are born into this world as a result of what happened to Adam and Eve there in the garden. And remember, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. But interestingly enough, when we get to Genesis chapter 5, it says, Adam fathered a son. And the language here is very revealing. It says, in his own likeness, after his image. Now it's changed. Yeah. So from sinful flesh is begotten sinful flesh. No longer does it say, oh, you know, you're made in the image of God and, and all, you know, everybody's now has this image of God. Remember, the fall has changed all of this. The fall has changed man's relationship with God. And this is why David in Psalm 51, a very penitential psalm, wonderful psalm, quoted very often in our liturgies and in other, work, other places in our church services. But David would say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Other translations will say, I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time of conception. So, in some churches, you'll, you'll hear them say, well, children are not sinful until they reach some sort of arbitrary age of discretion. And you say, okay, first of all, where does the Bible say this? And second of all, what is that age? Well, it varies depending on the church, I suppose. It might be 13, it might be 15, it could be 9, 7, 6. I mean, but the point is, is that's not what the Bible says. And remember, what is the, the ultimate proof that all men are sinners? Death. So we'd have to ask ourselves, do children die? Sure. Yeah. Do babies die? Sure. Yep. They do every day. Unfortunately, I mean, it's a horrible thing. Right. But that's proof positive that they too are sinners. If they weren't sinners, they wouldn't die. Anyways, uh, again, I'm probably getting ahead of myself. But as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, exactly what we've been saying, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the sinful flesh is sinful flesh. So sinners beget more sinners. It's not just a learned behavior. It's not something that you pick up later in life. It's something that you're born with. Now, it goes even deeper than that. And this is something that we have to learn by revelation, by what God has revealed to us, because it doesn't, it's not what our natural conclusion would be. We'd like to believe that we're not that bad, that we're pretty good, actually. Right. We'd like to believe that there's a spark of good in everyone. That sounds so much nicer, right? We certainly don't want to think that we're bad, or dare I say even evil is what, what the scriptures say. So 
it's important that, and I've got a, uh, I actually have a document that I've got many, it's like three pages full of verses that say exactly what we're going through here. So if you think we're just cherry picking verses, the Bible is incredibly consistent on this matter. So it's really hard to, to uh, figure out why so many people have it wrong. Right. And that's what we've said before, is you got to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Exactly. If you do that, and what you think stands up, great. Yeah, but but then we'll see just how consistent Scripture really is. And this is the wonder about it. I mean, it's not, it's not really open for interpretation. Romans chapter 7, St. Paul would say, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He's speaking of his sinful flesh. Notice he doesn't say, I know there's a spark of good within me. I just need to find it. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. Furthermore, the book of Genesis, God describes man. It says, and he says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil is not a neutral term. It's a, it's a, it's an ugly term. It's not one that we would like to be called. Well, it's kind of one-sided. Yeah, it's it certainly does not imply a neutrality. No, not at all. Uh, you know, so you say, well, you're just taking that out of context. It can't be that bad. Well, let's just keep on going. First Corinthians chapter two. The natural person, this is the person before they're brought to faith, the person as they're born into this world, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So, for they are folly to him, foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So, how much spiritual knowledge can you have by nature apart from God's Spirit? None. None. And we see this in the world religions. I mean, everybody... All the world religions basically, you know, they realize there's a problem. Maybe there's a rift between us and, their, and our creator. But the solution is always, well, I need to do something to make it right. I can, I can find my way. I can. Yeah, some sort of work that we can offer up that will get, at least meet God halfway or something like that, right? But that's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, St. Paul would describe our spiritual condition as being dead in trespasses and sins. As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins before you were you were brought to faith, before you were given new life by God's Spirit. So, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a dead person give themselves life. Um, nope, I don't think so. It's not possible. So, how can a dead sinner give themselves spiritual life? It's not possible. Not, not something they can do on their own. And furthermore, dead is not a neutral term either. I mean, if you're dead... That seems pretty... It's pretty one-sided, too. Yeah, it's pretty one-sided. <laughs> uh, Romans 8 says the, the sinful mind, or the, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's at enmity with God. Again, hostile is a pretty... That's a harsh term. I mean, you're saying we're not neutral. You're saying we are not don't have a spark of good. We're saying that we're hostile to God. Yeah, that's exactly what the scriptures teach. These and, are a lot of one, one-sided words. There's not a whole lot of uh, yeah. neutrality to it. Evil... Blind, dead, hostile. Uh, uh, ooh, that's that. That one hurts uh, because it, it takes away any sort of spiritual ability or goodness in me apart from what God bestows. But that's exactly the truth, and that's the truth that we don't like to believe. Nevertheless, it's the truth that God reveals over and over in the Scriptures. I remember it says that whoever practices sinning is of the devil. Again, uh, hardly. Neutral. I mean, that's that's not the way we like to think of ourselves. So, this is a problem. This is becoming more and more problematic for us. The more we we look on, the more we realize the complete depravity of our sinful nature, the complete lostness of our condition as we're born into this world. 
the more we realize there's nothing we could do. We couldn't take the first step. We couldn't make the first move. A dead person can't move, make the first move. So that sounds pretty dire. It sounds pretty, uh, like you said, one-sided. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not a good situation to be in. In Ephesians 2, uh, is very consistent with everything we've read so far too. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, you know, Paul's speaking to believers, but he's saying, you know, before the Spirit brought you to life and brought you to faith in Christ as your Savior, you too were children of wrath like all of the unbelieving world. So that shows us apart from the atoning work of Jesus, apart from a Savior from sin, we're only left with the wrath of God Unless somebody stands in and washes your sins away, unless somebody stands in and pays for your sins, unless somebody fulfills all righteousness in your place, you're left with the wrath of God. And that's not someplace you want to be. No, not at all. The wages of sin is death. Now, interesting. You know, we want to talk about earning. Uh, The Bible does talk about what man earns by his actions. And it's not eternal life. It says it right there. The wages the wages are what, you know, your works get you. If you work at a job, you you earn your wages. It's what you do that earns your paycheck. The only thing that our sin earns is death. Spiritual, physical, eternal death. And so all people as descendants of Adam and Eve are conceived and born in sin and bear their sinful father's image. There is no spiritual good in their heart at birth. They are inclined not to good, but only to evil. They are born into this world spiritually blind and ignorant of the things of God. They're spiritually dead. And even worse, enemies of God, hostile to God. God says, go this way. We say, nope, I'll go the other way. Our, our Lutheran confessions use a fancy word they call concupiscence to describe this inward, uh, innate desire to do the very opposite of what God wants. We're not neutral. We're inclined to evil. We're inclined to the opposite way. So because of this condition, we call it original sin, or it's the old Adam in us. So some churches, some people deny the teaching of original sin. Uh, They would say it's a sin sickness maybe that we, we inherit from our parents or from Adam, but not a total corruption, not a total depravity, not a total deadness, not a total blindness, and so on and so forth. It's hard to hear, I'm sure, for a lot of people. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to tell people that. So you got to come up with some other way to... To explain it. Yeah. So because of this condition, original sin, all people are by nature sinful under the wrath of God. I don't actually, I don't, I don't know anybody who's not a sinner. Maybe you do, Lauren. No. Uh, yeah. I didn't no. think so. No. Uh, Jesus, maybe that, that's the only well, thing I say. the one year. But because of sin, all are under the wrath of God and condemned to death and damnation. So, you know, the question is, what effect then does this, what we call original sin? It's, it's, we're, we're born into this world with a guilt of sin, even before we commit an actual sin. We're sinners by nature. The sinful nature has been corrupted. It's, it's been blemished to the point where this is what we do. This is what comes naturally to us. So Jesus would say in Matthew 7, the diseased tree bears bad fruit. By nature, we bear bad fruit. You know, and people will argue, say, well, I know a lot of Unbelievers who do good things in their community, they volunteer, they help out with the you know soup kitchen, they donate money to charities, they help other people. Uh, certainly, that's not bad fruit. Yeah, that gets them close, doesn't it? Yeah, right. But that which is not from faith is sin. 
you know, even our righteous acts are tainted by sin. They're filthy rags before God. You might be able to do something outwardly that looks good. I can do the outward action with the, with the right appearance. I can do the right thing outwardly and still have the wrong motive inwardly. Right. I can say, well, I'm going to go do this because it makes me feel good about myself. I, I, want, to, I want to look good in front of my neighbors, so therefore I'm going right. to Right, I this. want to show, show everybody how good I'm doing. So even the good that we do often is tainted with sin, sinful or selfish motives. So the, the, the fruit that we bear by nature is bad fruit. From a diseased tree bears bad fruit. In Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And he, I suppose he could have kept on going, but these are what defile a person. The point here is that sin is not just a problem of action or inaction. Sin is a heart problem. As I said, you might be able to curb the outward uh, manifestations of sin to a certain extent, although nobody can do that perfectly, but you can't change the desires of the heart. It's still, it's, right, it's still there. The, the lustful gl glance, the, the covetous desire, the envy, the greed, all of those things lurk there in every single human being. And anybody who denies that obviously has not really examined their own hearts very closely. In the book of James, it says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is a sin. So uh, I, I already mentioned this, that uh, original sin creates a great variety of sinful thoughts, desires, words, and deeds, and that we can sin by doing what is wrong. We call that sins of commission. Don't do that, we do it. And by failing to do what is right, sins of omission, do this and we don't do it. So by birth, we are really professional sinners. That's our job yeah, description. That's, that's a good way to put it, yeah. It comes naturally to us. As I said, if, if you've ever been around children, you, you realize that you don't have to teach them to be sinners. Put them in the same room and, you know, see who gets the toy. See an all-out brawl, maybe. A lot of crying, at least. Exactly. So the question then is, if, you know, if this is such a, a terrible predicament that we find ourselves in, how is anybody going to be saved from the disastrous consequences of that fall into sin, from this problem of original sin. And that's where we go back to that promise that God had made to Adam and Eve in the garden there in Genesis chapter 3. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Seed, they're singular. I, I think that's, I don't like this translation. I actually think the seed uh, translation is better because you realize it's singular. It's not plural. It's not just talking about the descendants of the woman, you know, would have this, this animosity between them and the devil. It's speaking to one specifically, to your seed. He shall bruise your head. That is, the seed of the woman will bruise you, your head. He's going to crush your head, you crush your skull. I like to point out that Jesus was crucified on a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. That's where he crushed the serpent's head. And you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. It would come at a cost. That would be the death of God's son. In the book of Acts, uh, it says, To Jesus all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what we could not do, the remedy that we could not fix ourselves, God has made a promise. He's fulfilled that promise in the person of his son, Jesus Christ who lived perfectly where you and I have sinned and fallen short, and who died the death that we deserved because of our sins. And by his blood, our sins have been blotted out. They've been washed away, washed clean in Jesus' blood. 
And this, obviously, this declaration, this good news, this forgiveness, this life and salvation comes to us specifically through a particular means. We call it the gospel, and that can be in the word as it's proclaimed to us or in in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And St. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is going to be an important point, too. God doesn't say, I've won you salvation, now it's up for you to find it. Right. You know, figure it out. Yeah. Or maybe if you send me an invitation, I'll give it to you. Right. You have to reach out to me. Yeah, and... he says, you know, let me know if you're interested and you know, send in your, your check and your money order, whatever. And... You have to make the choice. Yeah. No, he, he, he packs this salvation up in the gospel and word and sacrament, and he gives it to his church, and he says, preach the good news to all creation. Baptize all nations. You know, feed them with Christ's body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. So this is a, another very, very important point where we're going to see differences in understanding amongst the Christian churches and differences that do matter. Because at the end of the day, this is about our comfort, our consolation. How can we know that we are truly reconciled to God? How can we know that we're truly saved? And it's only when faith finds its foundation in the gospel, in word and sacrament, those objective means that are outside of ourselves, not in some warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart, not in my emotions, which change with the changing seasons, something concrete that faith can cling to. Uh, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Even a child can understand that. So immediately after the fall, God promised our first parents a savior who would free them and their descendants from the power of the devil. The Old Testament prophets continually pointed people to this coming redeemer in order that they might have forgiveness of sin and heaven by believing in him. You know, some people uh, think, well, but yeah, Jesus came and that's true for us New Testament believers, but how are those Old Testament believers, how are they saved? And, uh, you know, they think that somehow there must be a different way that they were saved. Same, Same promise. Yeah. The promise was made in Genesis 3, way back in the garden. It's that promise that was clung to by believers throughout all of history. You know, when you talk about Abraham, Moses, David, Adam and Eve, all of them, they knew that their salvation, their reconciliation with God, their union with God would only be possible because of a redeemer, a mediator, somebody who would step in in their place and make things good again, make atonement for their sin. So this good news, this gospel of Christ, is the message that brings salvation to everyone who believes it. And it's received by the open hand of faith, which, again, we can't even take credit for our faith. It's a work of God. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast, as St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Which will lead us into our next discussion. But if you have any questions on this particular lesson or episode, uh, feel free to email uh, or call and we'd be more than happy to answer that in a future episode as well. Uh, but on behalf of Western Koshkanong Lutheran Church, this is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you next time.